Welcome to the heart of a friend. This is Andy Wygan. May you find encouragement for your journey today. And just remember, we are all destined for more than what we've become. This is the first of three parts explaining a simple approach to a better life. Jerry Seinfeld once observed, according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. This means that to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. (laughs) Honestly, as much public speaking as I've done, I still get very nervous, but I have to say, having done more than my share of eulogies, I've never wanted to be in the casket. However, there is one fear I have that's pretty high on the scale. It's being expected to speak in public when I'm totally unprepared. This is the stuff of nightmares for me, literally. In fact, I did have this exact nightmare in January of 2019. I was in front of a crowd of people in a church, a lot of people, supposed to give the sermon. I had no idea what to say, couldn't remember anything, and the sick feeling in the pit of my stomach was growing fast. I was in full panic mode. It was terrifying. If there had been a casket, I would have crawled into it and pulled the lid shut. For me, this was a nightmare of the first order. Then, something happened that astonished me. Suddenly, I heard myself talking and making sense. I could hear myself speaking words. It was a coherent message. The feeling of panic in my gut subsided, and something else deep inside me from an unidentifiable source was expressing itself with great conviction. What I heard myself saying seemed very important. A nightmare had turned into a pretty darn cool dream. And then I woke up. So I wrote down what I could remember, and my notes are actually the starting point for this podcast series, A Simple Approach to a Better Life. Well, here's a couple of questions to start with. What do you think is the one thing that you could do to create greater happiness or satisfaction in your life? What's the one thing you could do to make a more significant impact for good in the world? Well, my own answer to these questions wouldn't be complicated or hard to understand. It wouldn't require attendance at a seminar and reading the latest array of self-help books, and it wouldn't require a prescription from your doctor. My answer is simple. It was stated most succinctly by a man named John, who was a first-century follower of Jesus. In his first letter, found in the New Testament, he writes these words in chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. I know this isn't particularly original, to say the least. These words are a couple thousand years old. Something more novel might have been nice to hear. A new magical formula for greater happiness. Yeah, we've all heard these words a million times. But look, just because we've heard love one another all our lives doesn't mean we do it. In fact, I'm not sure we even understand what these words mean. So regardless of the familiarity of the words, I'm still convinced that learning to love one another is the one thing we can still do to guarantee a better life for us all. So if I had one thing to say to you about 
improving the quality of life for yourself and for this world, if this was the only message you were ever to get from me, if this were to be my last words to my family and friends, this is what I would want you to hear. Dear friends, let us love one another. And I'm not alone in this conviction. I'm in good company. For instance, Jesus in Mark 12 talks about the two great commandments, to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Paul in 1 Corinthians, in very poetic language in chapter 13, says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and I can have all kinds of miraculous powers, and I can do all kinds of sacrificial things, but if I don't have love, I am nothing and I gain nothing. Peter, in his second letter, describes a kind of ladder of virtue and says, to your faith add goodness, to your goodness add knowledge, to your knowledge add self-control, to your self-control add perseverance, to your perseverance add godliness, to your godliness add brotherly kindness, and last of all, to your brotherly kindness add love. At the top of the list of all the virtues stands love. And John, in this short letter of his, uses the word love 43 times. And not that I'm an expert, but I believe that every other major religion of the world teaches the same thing. So whatever your faith may be, and even if you are a person of no faith, we can ignore what is ancient and universal wisdom only at great risk and loss to ourselves. The breakdown here isn't the concept. It's the implementation. We don't really understand what love is, and we don't do it. So let's take a deeper dive into what love means, why it works, and how to get better at it. A simple approach to a better life. So what is love? When I was in college, someone told me, aim at nothing and you'll hit it every time. So what should we be aiming for? One of the best definitions of love is one I heard at the Northeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Pastor Tyler McKenzie said this, love is doing what's best for someone else, whatever it takes. I like this because it captures what John means when he uses the word. The word love in this Bible passage is not an emotion. It's something more consistent and enduring. Maybe you've heard of the Greek word for love, agape. Well, this is what it means. It's a commitment to another person that does not depend on moment-to-moment feelings. Love is doing what's best for someone else, whatever it takes. There's nothing about feelings at all in this definition. So this kind of love is not about hormones and heart palpitations, romantic feelings. It's not an involuntary biochemical reaction. It's a voluntary choice. Emotions come and go. They rise and fall. My mother and dad were married for almost 60 years. When my mother was asked one time whether or not they had ever considered divorce, she liked to say, divorce, never. Murder, many times. 
Most of us who have been married can relate to this, even if we're reluctant to admit it. My wife and I have been married for over 43 years, and I can remember days when I came home and she had that look in her eyes. I'm reaching for the right word here, but homicidal comes pretty close. I don't know how else to describe it. Every married guy probably knows what I'm talking about. You get home and your wife has that look. It has an immediate and chilling effect, to say the least. You know, if look could kill, I'd have been dead many years ago. My point here is that thankfully, the love that holds any marriage together is not just an emotion. Because emotions rise and fall, depending on our moods, our circumstances, the behavior of those we live with, or the pizza that we ate the night before. Look, whether or not you like someone in the moment, you can still choose to love them. Because love's doing what's best for someone else, whatever it takes. It does not depend on whether or not you like them. Love is an action we take on behalf of someone. It could be anyone, regardless of how we feel. The secret to a better life and a better world is precisely this. Do what's best for someone else, whatever it takes. Of all the things that could be said about what contributes to happiness, satisfaction in life, about what makes a difference in our network of relationships in our world, this is the most important. Love one another by doing what's best for the other person, whatever it takes. It's a simple approach to a better life. Now the question is, how does this work? Why is love the secret to greater life satisfaction and a better world? I'll be back in just a few moments. So how does this kind of love change things? When we make the decision to do what's best for another person, whatever it takes, two magical changes begin to happen. How does it work? First, something changes inside of me. I spent 40 years serving as a pastor. Needless to say that over time there were many people with whom I had little natural affinity and some people who were very difficult to deal with, period. At first, I didn't like them, but these people all looked to me as their pastor. Now, it may seem a little bit, well, inauthentic, but I had a role to play, and I was determined to keep my job. In many situations, I had to have this sort of inner conversation or debate with myself. Well, I really don't want to be talking with this person. I don't want to go to this meeting or to the hospital or the funeral home or take this call late at night, etc., but... If I were a good pastor, what would I do? What would I say? How would I act? Most of the time, and with a lot of help from God, I gave it my best shot. Then, many times, something magical would begin to happen. As I did what was best for the other person, as I, as I pretended to care about them, my heart began to change. Over time, I began to feel a love for them that wasn't there before. 
Now, there's an important dynamic involved here. A decision to love can lead to a feeling of love. It's easier to act our way into the right feelings than it is to feel our way into the right actions. My external behavior can become a catalyst for an internal change of heart. When I act as if I love the people in my congregation, even though I may not be feeling it at the time, my heart begins to soften and change. When I act as if I love my wife, even though I may not be feeling it at the time, I find that my heart begins to change. And when I act as if I love my frustrating child, that feeling of love begins to be renewed. When I act as if I love my neighbor, there are feelings of love that begin to rise in my heart. Nikita Khrushchev, who was a former leader of the Soviet Union, once said in reference to his own humble origins as a pig farmer, a man rises to the stature of the office to which he was elected. Most of the time, I think that's true. When we find ourselves in new roles, as inadequate as we may feel, we often rise to the stature of that role. In other words, we aspire and rise to meet the expectations that others have for us. This is true of world leaders, it's true of school teachers, it's true of pastors and mothers and fathers, of husbands and wives. As ill-fitting as it may be at first, we tend to grow into the uniform, so to speak. So think of loving other people as a role we've been assigned. Love is the uniform we've been asked to wear. As ill-fitting as the uniform might be for us, if we put it on, we might be surprised at how we grow into it over time. That's why in the writings of Paul you'll find him saying things like, put on love, as if it were a uniform, ill-fitting though it may be for most of us. Love is a choice. It's a decision. When we make that choice, we're putting on the uniform, and it begins to transform us. I'll say it again. Our external behavior becomes a catalyst for an internal change of heart. When I act as if I love the people in my congregation, even though I'm not feeling it at the time, my heart begins to soften and change. When I act as if I love my wife, even though I may not be feeling it at the time, my heart begins to change. And when I act as if I love my child, that feeling of love begins to be renewed. When I act as if I love my neighbor, there are feelings of love that begin to rise in my heart. One of the great misconceptions about emotion is the assumption we make that our emotions and feelings always drive our behavior. Well, sometimes. But sometimes it's the reverse. Sometimes our behavior drives our feelings. We can act our way into feeling. Many times it's much easier to act our way into the right feelings than it is to feel our way into the right actions. I think the 12-step programs have captured some of the truth of this in one of their slogans. Fake it till you make it. So ask yourself this question. If I really did feel love for this other person, what would I say? Then say it. If I really did feel love for this other person, what would I do? Then do it. The cumulative effect of making this kind of choice over time in your family, neighborhood, church, 
place of work will lead to a transformation of your own heart. This is part of the magic of doing what is best for another person, whatever it takes. Something does begin to change inside of us. It's a simple approach to a better life. But there's more. Part two of this series will look at how loving others changes not only us, but them. It's the secret of reciprocity. To find out more about this simple approach to a better life, join me next time. Highlights and notes are available at the end of every episode. And if you'd like to keep up with all future podcast episodes, please consider subscribing. Remember, we are destined for more than what we've become. This is From the Heart of a Friend.